everybody. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of When I Grow Up. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Stan Sonu, who is a doctor and going to be talking to us about um, just his life and his story and what it means to be a doctor and how he even became a doctor. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Stan. How are you? I'm doing really well. And thank you for inviting me to share tonight. Yes, it is um, uh, my honor to have you on this podcast. Um, so, Dr. Stan, can you just tell us uh, what it is that you do, what kind of doctor you are, and what, what your practice is like? Sure. I am uh, a physician, and my specialty is in internal medicine and pediatrics, mm-hmm. um, which is a non-surgical specialty, and it pretty much covers everything that can go wrong inside the body uh, across the entire lifespan. Um, Sidebar already, uh, but being a physician is just one of the many ways, uh, many careers in in healthcare. So it's just one one way of many uh, to be able to help people um, and treat disease. So yeah, my specialty is in internal medicine and pediatrics. And I... I, um, I'm employed by Emory, but I spend all of my time, um, both clinical and non-clinical admin time at Grady Hospital, which is downtown Atlanta. Um, And I've been doing, I've had this job for about two years now, and prior to then was um, all the training that that led up to, to getting this job. So I really want to get into that training because, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like I, have this idea of what it means to um, even go to medical school or um, to be a doctor, but I think I don't really know. You know, I just have an idea of it. I do watch a lot of doctor shows, but I don't think (laughs) it's the same thing. Um, But before we get into all that, um, you being at Grady, what, what is a typical day for you look like? Like, um, because I know that Grady is the number one trauma hospital, is it not, in Atlanta? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so, yeah, what does a typical day for you look like? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's kind of a tough question to answer. Because I, I think I, ha- I, have, I have more like typical weeks okay. where within that week, it's kind of a mixture of anticipated like planned activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every day in that week is different. So I, I have kind of three main parts to my job. Uh, I see patients, so that's like the clinical side. I teach and supervise residents, which is uh, residency is the period of training after medical school uh, where a person differentiates into their specialty of choice or the one they match into and um, undergo training for a few more years before they can actually go out and practice. Um, So I supervise and teach residents as well as med students. And then I have some program leadership responsibilities. That's kind of my admin time. And if I'm lucky in a given week, I can have a fourth option, which is to do some research and write and some project work. Uh, So that fourth piece I have to fight for. um, But the other three I do pretty much every week. So yeah, it's it's a good variety. Uh, I think as a I'm a physician, but I would qualify that to say I'm an academic physician, mm-hmm. which um, is quite different than like someone out in private practice in the community who five days a week, they do 
primarily they're seeing patients, you know, back to back. Or if I was a surgeon, they would be, you know, in the OR, the operating room, five days a week or three days a week and in the clinic, the other two. But for me as an academic doc, um, it's, it's implied that I have some teaching and educational responsibilities along with um, seeing patients on my own. So how did you um, come into being an academic doctor over like, you know, like rather than opening your private practice or, you know, yeah. Do you get what I'm asking you? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good question. Um, and it's a, it's one that I don't get asked very often. Uh, I, so some people, when they come into med school or come into medicine, they, they're like, I know I want to be a surgeon mm-hmm. or I know I want to be a heart specialist, a cardiologist. And they can just go straight in that direction and, and just, you know, pass all the tests and jump through the hoops and do the training. For me, there wasn't like a specialty that I was drawn to, which is why I mean, I'm doing internal medicine, which is adults, and then pediatrics, which is children. And, and so it wasn't so much of a specialty, but it was, it was what, what do I care about the most in medicine? And in med school, that very, you know, very quickly became um, understanding and reducing health disparities um, between especially like race, 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 racial and ethnic lines, um, health equity. So those as like topics were the things that I became a lot, you know, very interested in. Mm-hmm. And so then when I asked the question, like, how can I, how can I actually be in this space as a out of training to do work in these fields? Uh, what, what specialty would allow me to do that the most and give me, um, a seat at the table or potentially the widest impact. And so that's where I landed on internal medicine and pediatrics. Mm-hmm. And then, and then um, the academic part was when I asked the question, you know, how, how, what would give me the opportunity to be able to share ideas with people um, to be in an educational role where I can also teach on ACEs or adverse childhood experiences and trauma, uh, which we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and then, yeah, so it, and then what, what can I do to um, be invested and be active in population health or public health? Mm -hmm. And so with kind of these interests that I had, it just didn't fit to do private practice where I'm seeing patients all day, every day. Um, and I'm and I'm sort of bound to see a certain number of patients a day to make sure that the bills are being paid and my salary is being paid and all that. I didn't want to sort of be bound to that, which mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. There's pl- mm-hmm. I have gr- some great friends who are who are doing that. Um, but for me, I didn't want to be bound to like a certain volume. I wanted a little bit more flexibility. Um, and so the trade-off that I made was, okay, I'll, I'll be in academics where I'm in kind of the educational world side of medicine. I'm not in private practice where it's a lot more lucrative. Mm-hmm. I have a lot more autonomy in my schedule. Um, my salary is determined by what I, how hard I want to work mm-hmm. in academic medicine. It's, I get a salary from Emory, uh, but I'm not bound to the volume of patients I'm seeing necessarily I get more time to teach and uh, more time protected, you know, for supervision, that kind of thing. So there's definitely like trade-offs for this, um, yeah. but I'm, I'm very happy that I am in academic medicine. I do not get paid nearly as much as 
um, my similarly trained colleagues who are in private practice. I see. Um, so that's just, uh, it's just a weird, you know, the economy of medicine and how people are paid is really weird. Mm. Um, it doesn't follow typical like free market capitalist economics. There's not a whole lot of cost or price transparency in any sector of healthcare, um, much less like physician salaries. But um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just bizarre um, how, how we're paid. I mean, that's interesting that you bring that up. I, cause I was curious, um, you know, mm-hmm. cause a lot of Asian parents, you know, they want their kids to be doctors or lawyers, sure for the status and the title, but also, um, you know, I think stereotypically they are known to make money or people, that's what people think. And I was going to ask you, cause like my, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my cousin is a lawyer and okay. I interviewed her too. And she, she actually said, look, if you want to be a lawyer for the money, don't be a lawyer. Because, <laughs> you know, unless you're a specific type of lawyer, you're not going to make the money you think that or the world's telling you that you're going to make. So, I mean, yeah, what would you say to someone like that? Like, oh, I want to be a doctor f- because I want to be rich. Uh, I, <laughs> I think, you know, the, 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 the direct truth to that answer is you can, you know, it, it is possible. Mm. Um, if someone is smart enough and they're good enough of a people person, uh, they can, they can get into med school and they can, you know, be interested in a specialty. And I, I think it's, you know, fields, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, rip on any specialty, oh, but no, there please, are certain yeah. specialties <laughs> in medicine that pay more and they're known to pay more. Okay. Um, and they're not necessarily known to be a place of like high need. Uh, and yet it, they're always competitive year after year. So there are certainly, and, and nothing's wrong, I think, with people wanting to provide and, and, and um, if that's sure, their North have. Star, like if that's what they're going for, that's fine. Uh, nothing wrong with that. This is a system they're in. They're not doing anything illegal with that. Um, it, it, it's just, but, but yeah, there are, there's a wide range of, of, of salaries mm-hmm. with physician specialties. So like your family medicine pediatrician tends to be paid lower. And then your um, plastic surgeon, dermatologist, orthopedic surgeon, um, your urologist, your gastroenterologist, they get paid on the higher end. Mm. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, if, if someone really wants to, to make money, they, they could do that um, because there are some positions that, you know, within a year or two, you, you can make, I don't know, 500,000 a year, which is a lot of money for anybody. That's a lot of money. Um, but I would say that to, to find this field fulfilling and meaningful and to want to do it day after day, uh, you need something more than just a job. It's a lot of work. It's a yeah. lot of work to just do it for the money. Yeah. Um, and there are much, I, I would say there are much easier things you can do that have a better work-life balance uh, that can make you a lot of money. So don't, you know, and, and then the prestige thing, like, yeah, there is a kind of a certain prestige dynamic with the public. But like when I, when I'm in the hospital, no one's like, whoa, here's this guy <laughs> with a white coat coming through. It's just like, hey, doc, like, what's up, man? It's, right. I'm just another, I have a, I'm a person with a role and I, you know, I'm a, I have a specific duty to, to do and to execute and a, and a role to play. Yeah. Um, there's nothing, you know, I don't feel, I don't walk around feeling the prestige. Like, right. oh, today, 
like this white coat feels good. Like mm-hmm. there's not, it, that's just, that's just, that's paper thin. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I don't think, uh, I mean, certainly before I went into med school, like I, I thought the same thing, like, wow, like those people in the short white coats, like, oh, they're so cool. Those med students are so cool. Those residents are so cool. Um, but having been through all that, like, <laughs> it's just, we're just, we're just people. <laughs> well, I appreciate your transparency yeah. in yeah, all of that, yeah. because I think it's important to talk about, especially if you have this kind of mythological kind of view of uh, what that really looks like. So thank mm. you so much for answering that in the way that you did. Um, but going back to what you were saying um, about even just, you know, in the beginning where you decided to pick a specialty and, and med school and all of that, could you just take me all the way back? You know, just even um, maybe even high school, right? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like when, at what point did you decide I'm going to go to med school? This is what I want to pursue. Mm-hmm. My, my grandfather was a physician and on my dad's side and um, he was a pulmonologist. He was a lung specialist uh, back in like the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. I have a photo of him that I show all the time. Like when I, whenever I give, um, like lectures on a certain topic, uh, where he's like sitting in front of a, he's sitting in, in his office in front of an x-ray and he's holding a cigarette. So he, he was a, he was a lung specialist in a time That's when funny. cigarettes were still like, they were, they were recommending like these cigarettes are safe for you. Yeah. And these are not. <laughs> um, and I, he, he moved to Atlanta when I was young. And, um, I remember like whenever I would go to their apartment, I would like sneak into his room and like get into his like stuff and I'd pull out like stethoscopes and pen lights and, um, otoscopes, like the, the flashlights into your ear. And I would just like kind of pretend play like I was a doctor. Uh, but he never really even, you know, he, he certainly didn't like stimulate my interest in the field. Um, uh-huh. He never talked about it. You know, he, he just, he, it, he just like, yeah, I was a doctor and this is what you need to do if you want to become a doctor, but he never like instilled like a passion for it, but it was just like on my, it was in the, it was in on my radar as like a potential field. And then in high school um, I would just like joke around. And one day I got like Dr. Stan Sonu engraved on my TI 83 <laughs> um, just to like, just, you know, I was just trying to be cool and like, Hey, call me doc. And, and then it just like stuck. And then it, the idea kind of became a little bit more real. I was like, wait a minute, like, you know, this kind of a thing. And then college, um, college was a really formative time for me. Mm-hmm. I met, I met some really great friends and we would have some conversations that were so deep, deeper than like anything that I've ever encountered. And there were sort of two main questions that came out of college that um, were like guiding questions for me and or not maybe not questions but um, maybe uh, things to things to go by you know Mm -hmm. like principles if you will and the first one was um, I wanted to do something you know it's pretty pretty generic but I wanted to do something that was helpful for people I Mm -hmm. wanted to be in a field where I was interacting with people and I could help them in some capacity, mm. pretty nonspecific. But the second thing that I, um, second principle that kind of emerged in college was whatever it is I do, I want it to maximize, I want it to challenge me and maximize my potential. Like I wanted to, I wanted, I want to use all of my brain power and work as hard as I need to 
So I know like that I can do something that's difficult. Mm. And of all, you know, when I kind of laid it out, laid all the things out, um, medicine just stuck out. And um, it was one of those fields that, that I realized like th- there's a potential to make an impact on a both small and large level. And this is hard, like it's really hard to do. And um, it's one of those professions that people kind of label as a calling because mm. it can be that hard. And yeah. so, you know, it was like, I'll try it. Um, and I'll try it until doors close. And, uh, you know, certainly doors were almost shut uh, for me, <laughs> um, especially like earlier, early on. And, mm. I, and I think that that's, I, I would say like, you know, I want to be clear since I'm on this podcast that, um, for me, the hardest parts of this whole journey for me were like out of college, trying to get into med school. That was the hardest part of all. I mean, once you're in medical school, there are a lot of support. Uh, there's, there's, there's just a good set, kind of a collective sense of support around the student to, to ensure that like they do well and they're successful and they can move on. Um, and the same would go for residency. It's kind of hard to get kicked out um, if, unless you do like something egregious or you fail everything but mm-hmm. it's hard I think it's harder psychologically just to get into med school because you don't know it's hard to know like where do you fit like how do you can you cut it where do you rank among other people who are applying um so yeah I think it, long answer to your question but things kind of formulated formed for me in college um just with asking some some questions around what matters to me? Mm-hmm. What do I find meaningful? How can I help people? How can I maximize my potential? So um, your heart, you know, to be able to, um, you know, just want to pursue the specific types of things in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, did it match up, though, with like what the things that you were interested in? Like, I know you said that, you know, medical school made sense. However, were you always kind of towards the sciences and biology? Oh, that's a good question. I actually think in high school, I was pretty weak in science. It was, I mean, it was something that I didn't never like minded, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it definitely wasn't something I was like, I am a science guy. Um, like in high school, I, I liked playing sports and I liked playing music and I liked, I loved my English classes. I loved history. Mm-hmm. So I was much more of a humanities oriented person academically I love stories and narratives and poems like like you know and then science was always something that just kind of I liked it it made sense it's kind of um, a place where there's like here's here's what we all agree on as fact and here's truth and and but I never was like exceptional at it and in fact when I went to college and I started taking pre-med classes my, my so my high school was really small and each class had no more than 10 students and so if I ever had a question about something, I never hesitated to ask it. You know, I, I, I was a lot more shy in high school, introverted by nature. And so I felt empowered in high school to speak up. And in college, when I did these pre-med courses, you know, bio, biological sciences or organic chemistry, and it's like a lecture hall of like 100 to 200 people. And they're an hour and a half long, and they meet three days a week. And then you know, after four weeks, you have a big test like that. I, it, it was a rough transition for me. And I struggled. I struggled in my pre-med classes. Mm. It, I squeaked by with a B minus and a couple of them. I escaped a C, you know, uh, for, in physics too. And 
Um, so I didn't have a lot of confidence in my ability in, as a scientist coming out of college. And, and I realized that, um, gosh, I need to change how I study. I need to change how I need to develop some critical thinking skills. This is what I've been missing. Um, and this is what maybe I didn't get enough of that in high school. So I, I think now I would say I, I'm a, I, I, I love science and, um, and that's kind of a generic thing to say, but I, I, I'm a lot more passionate about the, the, the subject and I'm better at it. Of course, uh, I'm a lot better at it than I was back then. I have a lot more confidence in my ability, sure, abilities yeah. in it now than I did back then. Okay. Um, but it definitely was like a trans, it, it, the sort, there had to be like a kind of a transformative process into that. Um, and I think it, within medicine, what I gravitate towards is not so much like the molecular mechanism, uh, you know, or pathway of this drug hitting this receptor and it um, leading to, to this downstream effect. And this is how we see it clinically. That's, I, I, I am interested in that. And I like to teach that. It's not what I'm passionate about. I think what, what I love about medicine is the people aspect to it, mm. the interacting with people, the, um, the skill of trying to understand a person's need, um, the, the uh, responsibility and the privilege of having access to, access to someone um, in, in a time of need and in, in, in brokenness for them. Mm. Uh, I, I love that part about medicine. And it's, it's, it's something that's never like predictable. It doesn't get old. Um, and I, and yeah, I just, I, I love the, I love working with, with people and um, interacting with, with patients and across all ages, you know, yeah. adults and children. That's amazing. Um, so uh, what was I going to ask? Oh, yes. Um, you were saying how actually getting into med school was the challenging part for you. Um, could you maybe take us through that process a little bit and just even, um, yeah, some of the challenges that you were talking about and um, maybe even like the practical aspects of it too, like what it was like studying for, is it the MCAT mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. and things like that? in preparation yeah. for med school? I, so I was in college and after I decided I want to try to, to apply to med school, um, then the big, you know, once, once you get your pre-med courses down, um, you, you have to study for the MCAT. And so after my junior year, before my senior year, I took that summer, I did some research. I stayed in Nashville where I was going to college at the time and, um, and I studied for the MCAT. And at the time, at least when I took it, and this might be dating myself, but a 30 was like the score you needed to, a pa I think, I don't know if there's like a passing score with an MCAT, but like the average um, score for people who get accepted was like 30 at the time. Out of, what is the? Uh, I think the highest can go up to like, I don't know, 60, I think. Oh, it's been so long, 60-ish. Okay. Um, okay. I started my first like practice. So I did this like review course. My first practice test was like a 17 mm -hmm. and, you know, I was 13 points away from the 30. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, all right, this is, this is bad. But, like <laughs> it's just the first test. So like keep your head in the game stand, like let's let's go to work. And so four weeks go by and we take another practice test. And instead of a 17, I get an 18. Oh, 
and, <laughs> and this is like July and I, and, you know, the test is like a month away and I'm like, okay, all right, well, doesn't feel like a whole lot of progress was made in the first month I studied, but like, let's keep going. And so then two weeks later, I think we take another practice test instead of an 18, I get a 17. I actually go back down. So three practice tests, you know, 17, 18, 17. And I've never been a great standardized test taker. Like my SAT was pretty mediocre. Um, my parents didn't, didn't send me to Hagwon like that. And I was, you know, I wanted to do other things with my extracurricular time and they could not have, they could not have paid me to go to Hagwon in high school. I I just, I was like, I will get into where I need to get in. Don't worry about that. Like, you know, I'm goal directed, like I'm going to do this, but, but, uh, so yeah, standardized test taking wasn't like a forte of mine, but after that third practice test and I got a 17, I had one night a couple days later where I wrote, I woke up and I had like hives all of my, I broke out in a rash and nothing like I went through all of like the possible exposures and did I eat anything, anything funny, anything new and nothing was different. It's just, I was so stressed out. Oh my goodness. Um, I wasn't making progress and I went to the, like the student health clinic and they just gave me some cream <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and, and so, but then the, the hive just went away mm-hmm. and the fourth practice test, I don't know. I just, I don't even remember what I was thinking. I just, I was like, I can't give up now. I just got to, you know, accept whatever comes. But I think there's something in me that I was like, I'm just like, I'm just like, so I'm pissed at this. I'm just so yeah. mad that like, I'm, I'm working my butt off. Like, what am I doing wrong? And maybe, maybe I got more focused in how I was studying. Maybe I got more, um, maybe just put a fire under me. It, maybe that's the intent of it. Like whatever they, if that's the design of the program, it worked. But that fourth practice test, instead of a 17, I got like a 24. Hey. So yeah, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, that's not good enough to, to get me into, you know, like medical hall to Georgia, the state school where I ended up going. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, an improvement. And then we took one more practice test like a week before the MCAT and I got like a 28. So then I was like, okay, you know, it went up. Um, Let's keep it going. And then, yeah, when I actually took the MCAT, I think I got like a 32, 33. Wow. um, which I've never shared that actually. I've never actually said that publicly, but yeah, that's what I got on the MCAT. (laughs) You know, and, and it was, it was, it's tough because like, my friends who were studying at the same time, like, I just, I don't know what it is, but I just had like my friend group in college, like they were so smart, they were so mm-hmm. much smarter than me and could study so much less and just pick up things so much quicker. So and that's where I realized, yeah. So I realized <laughs> like, all right, I'm not going to be the smartest person in the room, but I can outwork. Mm. I can at least match someone's work ethic, if not exceed them. Um, and that's the Korean thing in me, you know, like I, yeah. I know I can work my butt off. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were scoring like 36s and 38s and 40s and 42s. And I'm like, I'm fine with my 32, 33 right. here. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was good enough to get me into the school I wanted to go to. Nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I How have long you know, is I, the test itself. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, the MCAT? Oh, yeah. gosh, I don't even know if I remember anymore. Um, like in time, like maybe, yeah. Yeah, I think it's like four or five hours. So you're There's telling me a, you took this four or five hour practice test like five times before yeah. you actually took the test? Yeah. That's crazy. To. That's, 
I mean, that actually doesn't seem that much to me anymore because the board exams, like you're, when you get into med school, you have a couple more standardized tests to take some big ones, like step uh-huh. one. And I think that's like eight hours, maybe 10 hours. <gasps> and then your board exams um, can run over like two days. Oh my so, goodness. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's uh, gone are the days of like one hour tests. Right. You know? <laughs> like that, that doesn't, uh, there's just too much content to squeeze into mm-hmm. that short period of time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. You were saying, uh, what was I saying? Oh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have interrupted oh, no, it's okay. you. I forgot. It probably wasn't important. Um, well, we were just talking it. about how um, it was good enough for you to get in to the college that you or to the med school that you wanted to go to. Um, mm-hmm. So as soon as that happened, um, then what happens? Well, yeah. You, so you get it. You when you get accepted to medical school and um, it's an it's an incredible feeling. I'll never forget when I got the letter. Um, I actually came off the wait list for MCG. I got into like Tulane and Mercer and like Temple and a couple other schools. The school I wanted to go to MCG put me on the wait list. But mm-hmm. after a couple of weeks, they called me and said, you're off the wait list. And I remember like, just so, so elated, so happy that I got in and called my dad, I called my mom and they're so happy for me. Um, and yeah, so I went to Augusta, Augusta, Georgia to attend MCG um, and it was it, med school. I mean, <laughs> I came into med school so green, like so naive. I knew nothing about the human body. I, you know, I knew I had a kind of a foundation in like molecular biology. And, and so I was okay with like PCR and like Southern blots, like, you know, any, anybody. I have no idea what science. you're saying right Yeah. Now. It's just like lab <laughs> okay. stuff. Like I was okay with that, but like the human body, I didn't even know what questions to ask. And, and, you know, in orientation, they give you like your first like packet to study for the first day of class when you start anatomy. And we did the spine. And I just remember reading these words like F-A-C-E-T. And I was like, facet, like what it, facet, you know, like peduncle, like these words that I had never seen before. I'm like, I, I don't even know what I'm looking at, what part of the body this is. And I have to, I don't even know how to say this word. And like, that's where I started in med school. Mm-hmm. And, and it seemed like everybody around me, it was just like picking it up so quickly. And so one of the things that I felt really early on in medical school, especially was this thing, and it's actually quite common, but it's a thing called imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it's where you feel like you're the fraud, like out of a group of people, everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody knows their stuff except for you. And if someone turns the spotlight on you and says, what's the answer to this? Your, the fear is you'll be exposed as a fraud. Mm. And, and like, what are you doing here? Like, how did you even get in here? Like, you don't need, you don't belong here. Mm. And I don't, I don't, I don't know how many, you know, how many medical students felt that back then when I was in med school, but I, I certainly felt that a lot in mm-hmm. the first day of classes. And, and so what's one of the things that I like to talk about now with my residents and students, like, because they, I, I think when they see me like teaching on the wards or teaching in, in a classroom, like that doesn't come like the, that kind of vulnerability, like this, like insecure version of me, this unsure, like un, this, this person without confidence, who's like struggling with imposter syndrome and feels like a fraud. Like they don't see that side of me, you know, so overtly anymore, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's still there, you know, like that's a person um, that, that still is 
you know, that's still me in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a process. Man. So like, okay. So I mean, I, cause I'm imagining myself in your position in that during that time. So what does medical school look like? So what is the process of medical school? Cause I just, I know, you know, I meet people and they're like, Oh, I'm a resident. And I don't even really mm. know what that means. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I know that it means they're like in the hospital at uh -huh. this point, but then like how many years are you like, you know, what you said, like you're learning about things, anatomy and things like that, that you don't even, is that common by the way? I mean, I guess, do you know, is that, is that like, is it okay to go to med school and not know anything or like, Oh, I mean, yeah, it's, <laughs> that's where you learn, right? That's so, where you're supposed so you're to learn. So you're not like expected to... to like know no, things. Yeah. I, no, not technically. Okay. Not okay. technically, but you're supposed to have, you know, I think it's, it's a bit more competitive now than it was for me back then, especially MCG uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. To, to, to get into medical school. Um, and so it is recommended that like people come in with some like shadowing experience, I see. some volunteer experience, which I had, I just didn't have in like in the hospital or in, in a clinic. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I say I was so green. Like, and there's like another example I have, there's like a certain way, shorthand way we write down labs okay. when we check, you know, check lab, check, do send blood tests. And um, I remember looking at that for the first time, my third year in med school being like, what the heck? Like, how does... And everybody knew how to do it. And I was like, <laughs> when did you guys learn how to, right. to shorthand write this? You know, right. why am I the, the fool, you know, like the only third year? Uh, anyway, so the process of med school is the first in general, it's four years. Uh -huh, There's okay. some like five-year programs, four years long. You have to come in with some undergrad degree. So you can't go from high school. In, in, this, in the U.S., you can't go from high school to med school directly. Um. The first two years in general are what we call preclinical years. And so that's more like the studying, the textbook. Um, you might learn some physical exam skills, but you're not actually in the hospital providing care for patients. And then the third or fourth years are the clerkship years. That's mm -hmm. different from residency. Mm -hmm. So you're a medical student and you're inside the hospital doing different rotations in various specialties, internal medicine, general surgery, ENT, um, OB-GYN, and then that's where you kind of decide what, what you want to do. And then your fourth year, you apply, you go interview, uh, and then you match into residency. Um, it's a weird process, the match. It's, it's like you, you rank your programs that you like. Each program ranks their applicants that they like, and some crazy computer algorithm puts people together. Um, and, and so, yeah, you, you, Go to res so when you finish medical school, technically you you could do general you could be a general practitioner, um, which is not a board certified specialty, and you could technically go practice somewhere in the hospital seeing patients. But these days, I think most like ninety nine percent of hospitals in the United States want someone with a board certification. Okay. So in the you know. 50 years ago, you could just graduate med school and just start practicing and seeing patients, but, but that, that's, that doesn't happen nearly as often these days. Um, and then residency is like your post-medical school training, mm -hmm. and it's in your specialty of choice or the one that you match into, mm -hmm. and the training can range from like two years to 
eight years, nine years, if you're a plastic surgeon or a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon, that can go up to like 14 years because that's it's an it's actually an apprenticeship. So you don't graduate until you've, you know, your your boss signs off on you wow. in a way. Yeah. So it's a it's a wide variety. My training, so MedPeds is my specialty in internal medicine pediatrics. MedPeds is four years. Um, I did a chief resident year after that. So it technically was five years long. Um, and then I did a fellowship in public health in preventive medicine, which was two years. So that was seven years of training that I did after med school. So fellowship uh, is also part of the training. But yeah. So, okay. so after you specialize, which is residency, you can then subspecialize and further differentiate yourself in a fellowship. Okay. And, and I think what, one thing about medicine is it's actually, it's a, it's a field of a bunch of niche, niche, it's uh-huh. a niche, it's a niche career. Like okay. you find, you can find your little corner of the building mm. and like set up camp and then be known as like that person um, who's good at this or who's interested in this or who, who cares a lot about this. Mm. And um, it, it, at least that's the way academic medicine is kind of like turned out to be. So my, I'm MedPeds. I'm one of the few MedPeds docs at Emory. I, I see children and adults, um, which wasn't really a thing. Um, in Georgia, there's no MedPeds program. So there's, a, there's not a great familiarity with what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a niche there. And then um, some of my other like academic interests around childhood maltreatment, childhood trauma, child abuse. Um, that's kind of a niche that I've sort of grown into at, at Emory. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not going to dismiss what you just said, because I want to talk about what your specialties are, especially what you're saying about childhood trauma. Um, I did a little bit of research before interviewing <laughs> you, Dr. Stan, and um, I saw that you were on a TED Talk a couple years back. And the TEDx um, Talk, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. TEDx Talk, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, in my book, it's very similar, but... <laughs> <laughs> That was stressful too, yeah. Um, so you were uh, talking about in this TEDx talk uh, some of the things that you specialize in and the study that you kind of know a lot about. And from what I remember, it's called Adverse Childhood Experience. Um, could you expand a little bit on that? Just because I just find it so fascinating what you were saying in this talk. And I think it's important for um, anyone even listening to this podcast and this episode to hear about, you know, just to because mm-hmm. my, you know, my hope in this podcast is just exposure in general. And mm-hmm. I feel like, yes, I want people to know what it's like to be a doctor what the process is, but I also want them to know that as a doctor, you can do things to truly educate people and make a difference. Mm So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Could you kind of articulate? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I think that anybody who goes to work and they're working with people, that's very general, but anybody who works with people should, and, and is, is a boss over people, or in a team setting should know about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And and so what this topic is about is this understanding that the experience, the really bad experiences that we go through in childhood, before the age of 18, in early childhood, middle childhood, 
bad experiences like abuse, neglect, mental health problems in family members, a family member who uses drugs or drinks heavy, you know, like different types of traumas that people can go through in childhood. What this is about is understanding that, that those sometimes and a lot of times actually aren't just experiences, but they, they can actually influence our health and they can change our physiology through what it does to our stress, our stress response mechanisms and show up in the form of disease decades later. And so, you know, it's not just that, um, and we're not just talking about things like substance use, like a proclivity for substance use in the future or mental health problems, but like chronic disease, like diabetes and cancer and heart disease and stroke, like these things are in some part related to traumas that people have encountered and endured growing up. And so the key lesson for this topic is that what it comes down to is when you are interacting with someone um, who is exhibiting behavior that is like, makes you want to bang your head against the wall. You know, it's problematic. They're dysfunctional. They're, they're screwing up again. Mm. They're relapsing again, right? They're into that habit again. Uh, what this is saying is that they're not, there could be a reason for that. There's, there's, that, that, there's not a single person that I've ever met who had a serious substance use problem and did not have some type of trauma, something that happened to them when they were a kid. And, and, what, and, and the reason that there's such a strong link between trauma and substance use is because what trauma does to our brain is it, it just blows up our stress, our stress response system. And it, and it can make us hypersensitive to stress or can completely devastate and blunt our stress response systems. But either way, it makes us feel really not normal. Mm -hmm. And what, what we all do when we feel stressed is we find ways to cope, to, to alleviate that stress, to mitigate it. Mm -hmm. And the easiest thing, the quickest thing are substances. So the truth about cigarettes, for example, cigarettes are terrible for us. Everybody knows that. It's no secret. No one smokes being like, this is great for my health. What cigarettes have in them, though, are nicotine, and nicotine is a, is a very addictive drug, but it's a, it's a drug that can really bring down someone's anxiety so, so fast. Hmm. It's just temporary. It's packaged in sticks with tar and it causes cancer and all sorts of problems. But, there, but when you realize what, what nicotine is doing for people, there's actually like a benefit. You know, it's alleviating someone's stress really quick. And, and so it's not that someone just smokes because they think that it's healthy and it's good and they're denying the truth, but there might actually be a reason that someone finds it difficult to quit smoking hmm. apart from the addictive nature of nicotine. There might be actually a dependence from a stress trauma perspective, not just like the properties of nicotine. And so the, I think what it really, this understanding this topic has done for me is you know, and I know like a lot of your audience is, you know, they're, they have a faith background. Like I, I think of this, the science of adversity as a, a, a scientific explanation of grace, like why grace matters and why we need to have grace and show grace, because you never know what someone has been through and they might have that behavior that drives you nuts. And is, is just, you would call it crazy. You would call it dysfunctional, but you never know 
where it comes from. And I don't think it's like, a, it doesn't even have to be like a, a, an aggressive, like outward behavior, but it could just be the way that someone responds to something like their tendency to close up. For example, when someone's yelling at them, if you have someone, if you know someone who just like clams up, maybe that's, that's something that they learned and experienced in their family. Maybe when they were a kid, if they spoke out, they got slapped. So then they learned to just shut down. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, so there, there's all sorts of ways that this can go. Um, but I think this is a topic, unfortunately, that's, it's, it's, it's something that I think is foundational to health. And yet uh, we don't teach it widely in medical school, which I think is like a travesty. And the study that all this is based off of, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, it was published in 1998. So it's over, well over 20 years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not new. It's it's considered a landmark public health study. It was a it was done by the CDC here in Atlanta, and then Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. And then since then, they've had so like th- hundreds, even thousands of other similar type of studies that have shown the same thing. There's a strong connection between the stuff that people go through and when they're, when they're children and their health, physically, mentally, behaviorally as an adult. There's an undeniable connection there. And so if as a society, we're sitting there like browbeating people for not being able to stop drinking their alcohol and we're like, we're just, why can't you just stop? Like, you know, it's bad for you. You know, it's bad for your liver. You're destroying your life. You're, you're really hurting your family. You don't care. You're so selfish. Like we just beat on them so hard. But when you understand that, man, there might be a reason that that person can't quit, that, that there might be a re like that thing that they're choosing to cope with might actually be helping them in some paradoxical way. And, and so then it, it changes the dynamic of how we understand someone with an alcohol problem. It's not that they're just a bad person and they don't care about their lives, but they might be trying to forget about something that happened to them, you know, decades before. And, the, and they've never told anybody. They might not even realize that themselves. Uh, and so, so, I mean, I, I think, I, I hope it's obvious, like the implications in healthcare, right? Because we see all the time, we take care of people all the time in the hospital who come in for diseases that are quote preventable, mm. that are behaviorally mediated, right? So they, you know, we hear the phrase like you brought this on yourself. Like we, we treat these kind of diseases all the time. But I think what, what we have to realize is that no, like if, if, this, if this particular condition has a root cause in trauma, no child ever asks for trauma in their life. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we say to this child as an adult, when they're an adult now, why didn't you exercise more? Why didn't you quit smoking? Why didn't you stop drinking? In a way, we're blaming them for their trauma hmm. if we don't understand like this connection between trauma and health. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it's it's powerful. And, and, and what I've noticed too is that a few, a few times when I've spoken about this in a faith context in the church, mm-hmm. um, it's crazy because pastors just get it. Like, I think faith leaders, they understand, I think they see this, like they see like the brokenness that people have and are dealing with and are wrestling with. They see the shame that brokenness can actually um, generate in a person, you know? So one of the most paradoxical things that, that we know exists is that like victims of sexual abuse, 
can sometimes blame themselves mm-hmm. for that abuse. Like they deserved it somehow. They think about what they were wearing. They think about what they said. Was I sending mixed signals? When no, like the truth is you were violated and someone someone actively violated you. Mm-hmm. And, and, but but it's crazy how, how trauma can can twist that narrative and make us think like we deserved, we deserve that in some way. No child, no child deserves um, sexual trauma. You know, mm-hmm. like that, that shouldn't need to be, that doesn't have to be, it shouldn't have to be said, but it, but I'm saying it, you know, because there could be people listening to this podcast, even who that, that, that kind of resonates with, it, it's not their fault, you know? And, and yet we, we have this cult, the society's culture where it's like the only reaction you can have is shame you feel ashamed you don't talk and that shame is exactly why we don't talk about it um, when we need to especially in potentially incredible places of healing like the church um so yeah long story long-winded answer to say i think it's it's a really important topic um and it 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 resonates with me on so many levels as a physician, as a human being, as a, as a believer, as a Christian. Um, yeah, it just, it just, people need to know about this. So what comes to mind when you were saying all of this, especially just kind of, you know, my, uh, I'm purposely interviewing Asian Americans, uh, because I feel like there's something to it. I think that when, you know, as an Asian American myself, you know, when I see someone in a position where I feel like, um, you know, I admire, or I find inspiring and they are Asian American, it makes it a little more relatable and more doable. You know, I kind of feel like, oh, like um, it is possible, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, all that, that to say, because my target audience is Asian Americans, uh, what comes to mind as you were saying all these things is actually um, like first generation uh, Korean, par- Korean parents or Asian American parents, um, Asian parents, um, because, you know, I think there, culturally there's a lot of misunderstanding between child and parent, um, but I think yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? Just the first generation, you know, experiencing what they've experienced and then coming and immigrating to a land that they know nothing about and having to assimilate and that stress that's put upon them, um, you know, affects even maybe the relationship between child and parents. Do you have any comments oh, yeah. or thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, this, I, <laughs> It's, it's, it's crazy to me sometimes when I think the, the similarities that my like Korean friends and I have growing up, like not just how we had to navigate like elementary school and prejudice comments and, you know, this and that, not, not even like how we try to assimilate and try to pretend like we were white for a time, but um, the way that our parents were to us mm-hmm. and it, I think the language barrier has a lot to do with it, but I also think that culturally, when you name a tragedy uh, in, in East Asian culture, when you name it, you actually give it life and you, you breathe it into existence. And, and so that's why you hear stories about uh, someone's grandmother who had cancer and the family didn't want to tell them, that person, mm-hmm. because to know it, 
that means you are conceding and you are admitting you are you are um, relinquishing. You know, you're you're saying I give up. Um, so there's something there's a kind of a cultural force that we come into this with where we don't talk about these things, and I think the I don't know why that exists. My my guess is that Koreans have been through so many bad things that there's just too many to name um, historically, you know, over a hundred years ago. Right. And uh, even, even through the Korean war, which was what, 60, 70, 80 years ago now. Yeah. Um, there are just so many unspeakable things that have happened. Um, and so I, I think people just don't want to talk about them half the time. My, my grandfather never talked about his, exp- I mean, I, I was, I think I was a kid who like wanted to hear those stories mm-hmm. and, and, uh, he was, so he was married and he had, my dad told me this, I mean, he was married and he had like three sons and a daughter and he was living in North Korea at the time. Mm. And when, um, when the conflict broke out, uh, and you know, there was the communist army and the Chinese and the U S were kind of, you know, they're playing chess with Korea and they were, um, there was a lot of unrest. He went to Seoul, Seoul with, with his brother. And then like a day or two after that, they closed the border. Mm. And so he never could go back. Um, and because he was a physician, he was a target. And so um, they, his brother like made him, made him flee. Long story short, he never saw his family again. Mm. And, and then like some years later, remarried my grandmother who had my father and my, my grandfather was 43 or 44 when my father was born. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, he was up there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then, and then obviously I was born after that, but like if, if the, you know, if things had worked out like they should, like if my grandfather was able to go back to his family, then I would never be here, you know, mm-hmm. because my dad would never be here. Right. Um, and, and so I, I think that's just, it's a, it's a tragedy, but it's also like, for me, you know, a story of like redemption. And, and I wish my grandfather had talked about that with me, but, mm. but he didn't, you know, and it was just silence. And I think that's just how we've dealt with things as a people. It's just like, we just bear it. Mm. Um, and so I, I think, and then you add on like the language barrier to that, which you can't even like contextualize the silence. You, you can't even communicate to your child why you're silent you know like why you don't talk about those things interesting yeah so there's just so much miscommunication going on and what what kind of the net impression you get of of that parent's generation is they're just they don't think about it they don't feel it um maybe they're ignorant right and that couldn't be farther from the truth like i think they felt all those things but they didn't have the luxury and privilege like you and I do right now to, to be able to talk about these things freely without consequence. We're not fighting for our lives. We're not worried about a roof over our heads or yeah. the next meal we're going to get. We're not worried about some country invading us um, because they feel like it, because Korea is an important part of the you know Eastern Peninsula. Like they didn't have to, we don't have to worry about all those things now, but they did. Um, yeah. And then I think the final layer is like, we have a lot of forgotten history. Uh, as a people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was from people who occupied Korea and tried to extinguish Korean history. Um, and so there's probably things that we still haven't re- you know, recovered into memory. But I think, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of reasons for, for the broken 
I think in a lot of like a lot of my friends have great relationships with their parents, but there's a lot of brokenness with it too. Sure. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. When I was, you know, I think I have gone through a process myself of kind of kind of coming to, coming or coming to terms in in viewing our parents' generation through a lens of grace and more understanding. I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I was just angry. And, you know, I, I was just bitter and angry at the silence and like, you know, how come y'all are still racist and all, and all these things. And, and I think I've come a long way, a long way in sort of understanding that and putting it into context, not excusing the things that need to change, but not being so angry, not thinking that they're inherently bad as a generation, you know? Um, and then I think the way that uh, our parents show us love is because like, they know there's a language barrier and, 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 and so I think the, the, the translation of love is just putting food on the table yeah, and, so um, and buying things for you like, like that, right? You don't got to ask for it. I got you. You know, like that's the, that's how love is shown. And are you hungry? Right? Like that's, that's the, I love you in, in Korea, right? Or in Korean it's, it's come on, are you hungry? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, I love you and come on in. I missed you. So like, maybe, maybe some of that's there, but I think overall, like we're, we're kind of more subtle, like indirect with, with that kind of um, affection. Man, all of that was just really, it made me kind of sad because I think it's true. Yeah. And um, I think, yeah, definitely all of that that you just talked about, especially with aces and, and um just elaborating on that, I just feel like it's something that I'm thankful that I am more knowledgeable on now. Mm. Um, and I want to change how I view people. Like, that's <laughs> it's just crazy. It's crazy. Like, I, yeah, it's... it's crazy to me that mm. until today, <laughs> when I Googled you, I, I had no <laughs> clue, you know, like no idea. And, you know, I had mentioned to you before um, starting this interview that, you know, I can make assumptions about people. Oh, maybe they're this way because something that happened in their past. But um, for, for whatever reason, it just allows me more grace for people that even just people that I'm thinking about right now, you know, as we're talking, that there are serious physio- physiological you know, consequences to the trauma that they have experienced. And I need to be more understanding of that. So I know that's not why you came on this podcast, but, <laughs> but um, I'm extremely um, yeah, thankful that you were willing to share more about this topic. Yeah. I, what's crazy too, is that my parents know, you know, and thankfully like they speak English, like I'm so bad at Korean, it's embarrassing, but they speak English well enough to understand. Like I can talk, I can talk almost like freely. Mm-hmm. And, and so they've seen my, the, the Ted talk and, and they've, uh, they've heard like the whole kind of narrative science of adversity and what's, what's power, what's been powerful lately in the last few years is that now they're sharing stories with me with like mm-hmm. stuff that happened. And actually last week, my dad was telling us um, about this dream he has still. He's always, he's had since middle school of when he was like beat up in mm-hmm. school. And it was a true story. He was beat up, not by students, but by his teacher, his physics teacher or science teacher. He was, 
because back then it was okay. And so apparently something happened, you know, he, my dad was doing some work and there was a noise that was made. The teacher was like, who did that? And my dad didn't look up because he's like, I didn't do that. Why would I look up? And, you know, long story short, the teacher thought it was him and took him outside, told everybody to put their heads down into their books. And he just like started beating on my dad, you know, for like, like my dad said 40 minutes straight. And, um, and the teacher never apologized. Mm-hmm. He didn't get in trouble for it. Uh, he actually like had to be restrained by other teachers to like stop from doing that. The kids in my, in my dad's class felt so bad that when my dad went back into the room, like his face was all, you know, bruised and bloodied. They like pulled all their money together and went to some fun chip, you know, brought bread back for him. And then after that day, he was like, I was a hero because I took that beating and, you know, didn't tell. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but I never heard that story before. And, you know, I think in, in, I'm still kind of working through this, but I feel like there's some connection to that story because like, he still, like, he still wakes up from, you know, he has nightmares about that. You know, that, that middle school version of himself is still there. And, and, and I just, I'm glad that he felt like he could just kind of share that and it wasn't yeah. going to be ridiculed. That's I feel like all of us, we all have a middle school version of ourselves that just like is scared and terrified and just like really hates what we went through. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that little version of ourselves still exists and um, it can dictate our lives. And a lot of times that middle school self is a traumatized version of ourselves that can still dictate our lives and, yeah. uh, and run things. And so when a person can feel safe to share that, with another person and, and feel like, oh, they'll, under, they'll understand it. They're not going to judge me for this. They're not going to say it's dumb. They're not going to say it doesn't matter, but they're going to understand and be there. I think that can, that's where healing can happen from, yeah. from those kind of events. And so the, the other side of the trauma story is that the way we can heal from trauma, there's nothing, there's no drug, there's no program, there's no app, there's no substance the way we heal from trauma is relationship is a restored relationship. It doesn't have to necessarily be with a perpetrator, but it just, the healing happens through relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why I think, again, like faith leaders, the church, like should get this, that it's actually like, it kind of parallels the gospel in a way. Like the answer to sin was not God, like destroying everybody, but you know, through the person of Jesus, his son, like, he restored a relationship. It came, it came down to this relationship that was restored. And that to me, like understanding the science around trauma actually like fueled my faith more. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like these things are converging and they're talking about the same thing. Mm. And the answer is the same thing. It's not a drug. It's not, Mm. it's not some shortcut answer. It's just the grind of a relationship I think unconditional love is what heals. Like if you want to talk about the idea behind the relationship that heals, it's this sense of like, I will love you no matter what, no matter what you've been through, no matter what consequences that you have from what you've been through, I'm going to love you no matter what. Mm. And, and I think that that is what can allow people to, to heal over yeah. time. It doesn't happen overnight, but it, but it can happen that way. No, definitely can't happen overnight. I feel like it's going to take time, but, um, man, that is so good and so powerful. I, so like when you're treating your patients, like 
do these thoughts come to mind at times when you see like like a consistent like diagnosis on a person or things like that? Yeah, I I, I think you know you have to be really careful about um, the intent of like knowing this is is not to like pry into a person's life right, right. Uh-huh. or be voyeuristic, right? So we don't, I, I don't support like asking everybody about their <laughs> Sorry, trauma history, funny, you know? Right? No, 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 I know that's what you're implying, but I think some people could like, oh, maybe like, no, we don't do that. But I think it's understanding and really it's like managing my reaction. So if I walk into a okay, room yes. and like a patient is like, just like pissed off, hypervigilant, yelling in my face, um, before this, I would, I would kind of be like, what? Like, you need to calm down. Like, what's wrong with you, sir? But now it's like, what's going on? Like, what happened? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what, what set you off? Like, Mm -hmm. there's something that set you off and I need to understand that. Mm -hmm. So it's given me like a kind of a, like a, an extra like room to pause and just not judge and let, let just give me some time to be empathetic. Um, we, the, the phrase that I sort of teach the med students and residents to kind of go by, like the framework is it's not what's wrong with you, but it's what's happened. And that, that it's a paradigm shift from saying, okay, you've got really, really bad liver because you've been drinking for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Why can't you stop drinking? What's wrong with you? We switch from that to, okay, your liver is failing from 20 years of drinking what is it that keeps coming up that makes it make sense to drink, Mm -hmm. to drink it away? Mm -hmm. Because that's the problem. Like whatever you are trying to forget about, whatever stress you're trying to push away, like that's the source. The drinking is a symptom of that, that cause of pain. And as your care provider, as a physician, I need, I want to understand like what the thing that bothers you and we'll, we'll, it matters because it, it, it has an implication on the symptom, the drinking, which we need to, we need to address, but the root cause of it is not the drinking. If the root cause is the drinking, that means you just suck as a person and you have no willpower and um, you just deserve what's coming to you. But if the root cause is not that they're a bad person, they can't stop drinking, but they're actually trying to forget something or deal with something in some way. They, they, this is a pattern that has worked for them over the years to get them out of stressful situations. The, you know, then, then I don't know, I think the perspective changes. And mm-hmm. the other sort of practical application of this is, yeah, I kind of alluded to it already, but it's, it helps me to put into context um, you know, people's behaviors and, and not, and not just patients, but like my friends, my colleagues, my sure. family, yeah. um, my, my wife, my spouse, you know, I think they're, they're, when you, when you have eyes to see, um, it can help you in all your relationships, not just in a professional capacity, but yeah, there, there are certainly certain, I mean, at Grady, we, <laughs> Grady has, uh, we, our patient population is a very, very traumatized population, mm-hmm. um, historically and present day. Mm-hmm. And, and so how can we not be trauma-informed 
if we want to work at Grady? That's my question. Like, how, how can you not have this understanding of trauma? How can you go into Grady and be a doc and, and like blame everybody for like what they've been through <laughs> yeah. um, and like stuff they're showing up with? Like, how, where, where does your compassion come from? You know? Uh, so I think you, one of my like kind of overarching missions of, of, of being at Grady is to keep teaching this to as many who will, who will hear and listen. Um, and fortunately for the med school, like it just, it's caught on and the Emory medical students are just incredible at just like latching onto this and being like, we need to, we need to have this teaching like every year, every single rotation, every specialty, um, yeah, they're, they're incredible in that way. So there's, we have momentum, you know, growing, but a lot of work to do still. That's incredible. Yeah. It's, it's, um, kind of exciting in the fact that people are, or med students and medical schools are latching on because I just feel like it would just, you know, continue to produce amazing doctors too. So it's great. Yeah. I mean, I think the same goes for like schools, um, the justice system, uh, actually, Last October, I had heard, or last fall, I had heard about this judge in LaGrange, Georgia, Troop County, Georgia, which is directly west of us, a little bit southwest. It's the county, um, the the furthest west county, like one of the, like it, it borders Alabama. Okay. And, and so yes. I heard about this judge who was trauma informed, um, this juvenile court judge, semi retired, and he was doing things like he wouldn't cuff the children uh, coming in. He would allow them to hug their parents. Um, any, I'm gonna cry, any, that's crazy. Yeah, any, <laughs> any of his deputies uh, who, were in, who were sent to schools were always in plain clothes. Mm. Um, they were instructed never to cuff a student in the school um, because to, have, to cuff a student in the school and have them walk through, that's gonna label that student for the rest of their time at that school. And so he was doing these things and. And I was like, man, like, what was this judge doing trauma-informed care? And, and so then I, I was like, I just emailed, I mean, I don't, I don't fanboy that often, but I totally <laughs> fanboyed on him and I Googled him and I found his email and I just emailed him out of the blue. I was like, hey, I'm this doc at Emory. I'm, in tr- I'm really interested in trauma-informed care and I heard about what you're doing. Can we meet? I would just love to, to just hear about what you're doing mm. and, and just hear about your experience. And I got time off of work you know, and he, he responded and he was like, you're coming down. I Googled your name. You have a Ted talk. You're going to be speaking to <laughs> us too. So he made like this big event and invited the community to come around and yeah. they all came because you know, they, they really respect him. Um, his name is, is Michael key judge, Michael key. Um, amazing, amazing guy. I mean, just a leader. Like, he's just he's like the only guy, only, you know, in that side of the state doing, doing this kind of, having this kind of approach for, and he also changed like the, you know, the built environment of the courthouse. Like he did all these things to, to make it like trauma sensitive and trauma informed. Um, Certainly we have a long way to go, you know, there and in healthcare. But when you hear these stories of people kind of doing, doing it, it's just, it's powerful. It's moving. He, he's dignified. He's, he's making his courtroom a place of dignity um, where people aren't just automatically assumed to be criminals and delinquents, but he's he's trying to preserve their humanity. And then I think that's what this all kind of comes down to in the end, is we are so easily swayed as human beings to objectify, dehumanize, if someone doesn't fit into our box of how they should 
behave and operate. We're so quick to do that. And I think a great example is when, when we saw a bunch of looting or we heard about lootings during the protest in you know, late, uh, late May, early June mm-hmm. with the Black Lives Matter protest. Mm-hmm. When, when people don't understand, you know, when people see looting and they're like, oh, this, this totally delegitimizes that cause. They don't understand the trauma that's behind why the looting then they miss the point, you know? So, so I think those kind of misunderstandings can be clarified when you, when you have this understanding of like how trauma shows up years later, not just in adulthood, but in kids as well. Um, so yeah, I, I think this work has to be cross-sector, you know, the justice system, the educational world. Um, I know people who try to get in front of police departments because um, what would it look like if you have a police force mm. who understands trauma, right? Maybe they're not going to go for a chokehold, but maybe they'll try to de-escalate ahead of time, understanding that the more aggressive you get, the more it's going to put that person into a fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. And when you back, you know, if, if, if we're out in the wild and you corner a, a tiger, it doesn't matter how, like what show of force you have, that tiger is going to fight until it's subdued. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what that fight or flight response does. So, you know, I think there's a lot of um, areas of, of where this can, can really change how we do things in our country. Um, yeah. But so, like, okay. So much to do. I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry. We are like, no, no. I, I try to keep it under an hour or like at an hour. Oh, but... I didn't. No worries. No, but no, <laughs> I'm okay. Are you okay with time? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can, okay. I can maybe like 15, 20 more minutes. Okay, okay, yeah, perfect, yeah. perfect. Thank you so much. Um, but I just real quick, um, what okay, you know, for someone that maybe feels like they don't have a large platform, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe just a high school student, a college student, you know, someone that you know they work in the coffee shop or you know, things like that. Um, what can we be doing um, to help the, help the process? You know, like, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Be more sensitive. You know, yeah, we're not we're absolutely. not judges. We can't like alter the culture of the county. Yeah. But um, no, I'm, I'm I'm really glad you're asking this question because it's not like you have to have a a, a seat of influence to to be active and do something in response to this. Um, because the truth is like a lot of the work that that's going on for me, it's just like internally, like I'm constantly checking myself. It's given me sort of this, this um, ability to check myself and kind of gauge my bias. What's my reaction right now? Why am I getting amped up? Why am I, you know, so I, I think a lot of the, um, the takeaway from this is check yourself and what your knee-jerk impulse reaction is to a given situation. And I think for people, it's just different. Um, it, it can be across the board. It can be, do you cross the street or do you, do you hold your bag a little tighter when you see a person of color on the sidewalk walking towards you? Mm-hmm. Um, do you automatically assume that if you see uh, a mugshot of a person who's black that they're guilty um do you for your family member for your distant relative whoever 
who who is um, who's been a hard, a heavy drinker for years and can't stop and has ruined their marriage and you know has broken relationship with like how do you view that person uh, and so I, a lot of this is just like your own the work the hardest part of the work is is on your own self and so within trauma-informed care there's sort of four r's that we go by the first one is realize that means realize like this science between trauma and health which we've kind of done here mm-hmm. the second r is recognize Mm-hmm. So recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma when they're apparent in front of you. What, what's, you know, what, one thing that's kind of interesting what we do is when, when someone's in our face, our stress, our fight or flight systems get activated and we don't even think about why they're upset. We just like, why are you in my face? And we get, uh, you know, if someone's even remotely directing that agitation and aggression towards us, then we start to reciprocate that almost, we get very defensive very easily. And so what recognize means is instead of getting defensive, hit pause and then ask that question, it's not what's wrong with you, but but what's happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's recognize. The fourth R is um, realize, recognize, oh my goodness. Um, Is it refer? (laughs) This is crazy, it's been a long day. No. it is oh no it's respond it's respond um so <laughs> respond means you can refer um it, but it, and for me on a on an interpersonal level it means i don't respond um i don't retaliate like i don't reciprocate but i respond um from a position of empathy mm-hmm. and i start there um and i and i have to say like that that has saved me so much and so many encounters when I walk in the room and I can tell like, oh, this mom is pissed off at, you know, just in general, mm-hmm. um, or this patient's been waiting two hours. They are livid right now. And I think prior to this, like I could have been really passive aggressive and like, you know, giving shots back at that, at them. But now it's, it's, I, I feel like I have the buffer buffering ability to kind of put the, their, their frustration in the context. It's not about me. I don't, it's not about, it's not meant to be personal to me, but they're upset about something and I need to understand what they're upset about. And the fourth R is to avoid re-traumatization. So mm. I think for your high school student, for your, for who's working in a coffee shop, um, they're going to, they're going to interface with people who've endured trauma and it's going to show up in the way they treat them while they're ordering their coffee at that coffee shop, um, they might be really rude or where's my, you know, th- th- so I think it's, it's understanding that when someone, you know, when we, when we're at our best, we're friendly, we're kind, we're cordial. When we're at our worst, it's much harder to maintain those civilities. Sure. And for that person who's working in a coffee shop, if you got someone who's in your face rude to you, that's not right. They should not be rude to you. This doesn't change that. But the way you respond might look a little bit different if you can understand like, man, what's this person's day been like? Like, what, what have they gone through? Did they, did they just come from a nursing home where they couldn't see their, 
their mother who has COVID and they're really worried sick. And now that they've been up all night and now they just need a cup of coffee and they're yelling in my face. Like, you know, it could be any number of those things. Again, the point of this is not to ask, we don't need to know, (laughs) but the point is to understand that trauma is common. Like people are dealing with stuff all the time and we are really good at hiding it. We, we, we We are excellent at pretending like it never happened. Korean people are incredibly good at acting like we've never experienced trauma when again, that could not be further from the truth. So yeah, I think a lot of this work ultimately is, is in ourself and um, how, how we respond to dysfunctional yeah. problematic behavior. Thank you for that advice. I, and um, just to kind of wrap up our time together, I feel like it's kind of abruptly ending, but um, I, <laughs> because I just really enjoyed, um, not in, you know what I mean? I, yeah, yeah, I liked yeah, no, being good. informed about sure. all of all of uh, what you were just saying, and um, but you know, I was wondering if you have any kind of advice for somebody um, that maybe is thinking about going into uh, the medical profession or wanting to be a doctor. Um, yeah, any advice at all for them? Um, yeah. Um, well, first, you know, I've, I've been kind of sitting on this for our conversation, but I do want to say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a guy, I'm a man mm-hmm. in medicine and that's pretty, an Asian man in medicine is pretty stereotypical as you get. Um, <laughs> before I jumped on this podcast, I was looking up some data, some statistics on the demographics of people who've gone to med school in the last, you know, 20, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that somewhere around 2005, 2006, among Asians, the proportion of graduates who are men was actually exactly the same as the proportion of graduates who are women. So of Asians graduating medical school, 50% are men, 50% are women. Wow. And prior to 2005, 2006, there was a pretty, you know, it was a wide but gradually narrowing gap. But, you know, in like the 90s, for example, you had much less women graduating from med school or going to med school in general, general, mm-hmm. um, compared to men who are Asian. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just want to highlight that because um, women in medicine are crushing it right now. And if you are a young woman and you are thinking about med school, and you're only seeing guys like that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. There are many women in medicine, and um, I, as well as my colleagues at Emory, are really passionate about um, that sort of gender equity and ensuring that that uh, women, you know, to be an ally to to make sure that um, I'm actively participating in creating and, and cultivating a space that's inclusive of women. Um, not just people of color. So, you know, I'm glad you had me on the show. Part of me kind of wishes you invited a woman physician so that sure. Maybe we can kind of crush that myth. Yeah, um, because I think one thing about Korean parents is that uh, maybe it's not just so true anymore, but at least when I was, you know, in, in high school, um, when you thought of a doctor, you didn't think of a woman uh, at the time. But, but these days, um, 50% of the graduates who are Asian are women and 50% are men. So it is it is equal, and, and that is a good thing. Um, and then, so any advice I have? 
Um, gosh, it's a long journey. I think if your heart is not into helping people, um, there are other good professions for you. But mm. reasons I would not get into this field is, let me just go on the list. Like one, your parents told you to. Um, it, they, it's well-intentioned advice, but if your heart's not in this and you're doing this because your parents um, want you to, you have a high chance of being a bad doctor. And we don't need any more bad doctors. The, the people who struggle the most in residency for my position are those who come in without a sense of like, I like this. Um, they, they come in without a sense of passion and they come in with a sense of like, I'm just here to make money, put in my time. Um, and then, yeah. And then, and then go on to make money. Um, but they're not, they're not good with patients. They're not good team players. And it's not because they're bad people, but their heart's not in this. And, and so if your heart's not in it, uh, you're going to be forcing yourself to just do the bare minimum. Whereas if your heart is in it, you will, you will be exceptional because you want to be exceptional because your heart's in it, you know? So, so don't, don't come, don't pursue medicine just because your parents tell you to, that's a terrible reason to do it. Um, if they bring you, if they give you the idea and you end up liking it, that's different. Okay. So, so that's not to say, don't listen to any advice of your parents. Um, secondly, I would say the same thing for money. Uh, this is a field where you can make a lot of money, but again, it can be brutal and life-sucking <laughs> if you're just here for the money. I mean, yes. life-sucking. Like to be a, neuro, uh, neuro, um, a neurosurgeon, spine, brain surgeon in residency for seven years, you are at the hospital at 5 a.m. You leave you know, between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. every day. You get six days on, one day off, uh, and that's six, seven years. That's a brutal, like you can't, your spouse is not going to be happy with you. Your kids are never going to see them. Mm. Your friends are never going to see them. And anytime you get off, it's just, you're going to get, it's going to be pressure to like squeeze in as much as you can. So you're not going to get, you're not going to have times of rest. So it's, it's a, it's a tough lifestyle if you're just in it for the money or, or, or not, you're not, your heart's not in it. Um, third, I would say that, the, the, the successful person in medicine doesn't have to be the smartest person in the room. It's okay. If you're not making a 4.0, um, you, you can't be averaging a C I'm not going to lie. Um, but if you're somewhere <laughs> between a three and a 4.0, um, you know, and, and you're interested in med school, do not let uh, a lower GPA dissuade you mm-hmm. again, if, if this is, if this is really what you're interested in, the successful people in medicine are the ones who work the hardest. So if you have a work ethic and you're an average, you're of average intellect like me, um, but you can work your butt off, then you can do med school. And I wish someone had told me that because I feel like that would have given me some confidence like in high school and college um, to know like it's a lot to learn, but if you work hard and you put in the time and you're diligent with your studying and you commit to it and you take it seriously, uh, you can be successful, um, guaranteed, guaranteed. Um, four, med school is really expensive and it's really expensive just like a lot of colleges and other professional schools are. Um, I have student loan debt that I'm paying off and, and will be paying off for a while. So that, that is something that 
I got bad advice on uh, when I was in med school. Uh, what I heard a lot of was like, oh, you'll just pay it off. You'll just make enough money to pay it off. And um, <laughs> it, there's more to it than that. Okay. Right. So, so like make sure you have your financial ducks in a row before you embark on this career that will put you $250,000 in debt. Like it's nobody's business. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's all the advice I have right now. And then fifth, like I'm, you know, please, whatever you post about this, like, I'm happy to talk to anybody. Uh, you can put my email on there. Um, I, like I said, at, at the beginning, before we started recording, I, I think one, one thing that I enjoy doing is to just be a listening ear for someone who's sort of asking questions about this kind of thing. And um, if I can be of any help and providing clarity one way or the other, you know, um, I'd, I'd love to, to do that. I, I want to, you know, um, it's being, being where, I, where I live right now in North Druid Hills, not a whole lot of, you know, not a large Korean community. I'm not going to KCPC like I wasn't, you know, back in college and high school, but I would love to continue to be a part of the Korean American community here and invest in it. And, and I love, like I, like I said, I, I care about this community deeply. Um, so if anybody has any questions, like, please don't feel shy or like you're intruding or like you're bothering me, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Stan. Um, I truly appreciate the sentiment in that as well. And thank you so much for this awesome conversation. I, tr I truly enjoyed it. I learned a lot today. So thank you again for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Um, like Dr. Stan said, if you have any questions or just, you know, want to want details about anything, you know, don't feel like you are intruding. Don't feel like you're a bother because we truly want to equip you and help you in the best way possible. Um, so um, I will get your e get um, Dr. Stan's email to you guys. Um, if you want to just DM me through Instagram, that's cool too. Or you can um, email us at podcastvigu, W-I-G-U at gmail.com. Until next time, guys. Bye.